In Gregory Brown's novel, The Lowering Days, protagonist David Almerin Ames and his family live in Maine along the Penobscot River. He and his brothers have an affinity for the natural world. It's a love influenced by their parents, Arnaud and Fallon. The family has an abiding respect, too, for the people of the Penobscot Nation and the wider community. Fallon runs a community newspaper that gives voice to the indigenous and white issues in and around Penobscot. But then something happens that's beyond the control of any one of these characters. How will the family survive the events that have been set in motion? This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. In The Lowering Days, in the Penobscot Valley at one time, the largest employer had been a paper mill, one that had been known to poison the river. When the building is burned to the ground right before it's to be reopened, the community is ripped apart. Fallon receives a letter from a Penobscot teen who confesses to the crime. She perceives it as an act of justice for what's happened to the river, but also for centuries of what she considers to be other assaults. The divide within the community threatens to break apart the Ames family, too. Will the weight of history and these new contentions threaten the enduring love of the Ames family and their connections to the community they so earnestly love? I spoke to author Gregory Brown about his novel, The Lowering Days. I think I'm going to start off by saying to you that your acknowledgments page is as gorgeous as this novel. Um, I, I just had to mention that I, I was, I mean, it, it is as poignantly beautiful as the rest of the book. I have to say that. And I don't, I read a lot of acknowledgments and I don't always find that to be the case. So I'm, I'm so happy you had that experience. Um, one of the first things I always do when I'm reading a book is actually read the acknowledgments. So <laughs> it's, it's a moment I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, so to hear that it registered deeply with someone, um, that's the first I've heard that. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Wow. Well, it's really, I really mean it. And I'm like you. I, I sometimes go all the way back to the acknowledgments first before I do anything else. I'm not sure why oh, I do that, but so I do that too. <laughs> so tell us about the lowering days. Um, there is mention of uh, the title of it as the name of the newspaper where the character of Fallon works, a newspaper where she that she manages. Um, but tell us about The Lowering Days first, the novel, and then we can talk about that. Sure. Um, the, for, for me, the, the Lowering Days has kind of always been um, a bit of a love letter to the place I grew up, which is, you know, the Penobscot River Valley. Um, it, it's a fictionalized version um, of, of that place that I'm writing about. But it, um, you know, I don't want to get too much in, into the plot, but it, um, it, it focuses on kind of the, inter the intersection of, of three families um, in a small fictional town in the Penobscot River Valley, um, a place where, where the, like, the land is very much alive and the land has also been very much used over time um, as a resource, um, exploited, degraded. And it asks, you know, this question of, of who does land belong to um, and what does it mean to protect land? What does it mean to live um, together with land in a way that, that you know, one is upholding or shepherding it. And, and also like, why is it so often that we, we see in small towns, um, you know, a continued cycle of resentment and, and often violence. And why, why is it so hard for, for people to embrace compassion um, as opposed to those more damaging um, impulses? But 
the, the title specifically yeah, refers to um, a small town newspaper that the protagonist's mother runs um, called The Lowering Days. It also kind of folds through the book in other ways um, as a bit of a motif. Um, it's also the, the name you know, of the day that a boat would be lowered into, into the ocean. Uh, the protagonist's father, Arno, is a boat builder. And um, it also has a connotation as um, you know, funeral day, the day a body would return to the earth. So it has all these echoes that I hope weave through the book in a satisfying way. They really do. I mean, it's set up for us just to look at the book. The Lowering Days is such a striking title to begin with. Thank you. And then uh, Reggie Fallon's brother is the one who says when she when she says she wants to call it the Lowering Days, wants to call the newspaper the Lowering Days. He says that sounds ominous. And she goes on to explain, or the by way of the protagonist David, of course, um, as you said, it's a, a name that came from her great grandfather, who had been a doctor up in the Penobscot in Prospect, and also routinely presided over funerals, gathering the townspeople in mourning on these lowering days, as he called them, when a body was sent into the earth. Other times, she said the name came from the birthing day for a boat, the lowering day when the finished hull was first slipped into the waiting sea, which I, I like, too, because of the connection to the work that um, Arnaud does. Well, here we are, roughly the 80s, but the mm -hmm. call for eco-activism is really strong in this novel. I'm not sure people realize that the movements that we see today for reckonings of of various kinds are rooted back decades ago too certainly in a place like penobscot the tensions at least i imagine must have always existed and as you write about the character of fallon and her work this was the time of the clean water movements absolutely it was the time of the clean water movements um it was also the time in maine specifically as the you know the Maine indian land claims act settlement when um you know the, the main main tribes were were on the verge of and they ultimately were um, awarded huge financial reparations that were primarily used to buy land back. Um, so you know the question of def of defending the environment and the question of you know returning land to its I don't want to say rightful but it's um, well it's, it's it's you know rightful shepherds was very alive at that time period um, for sure and and. It's interesting too, like this this question of what what is an act of like eco defense and what is an active active environmental terrorism and how different languages or different words are applied to different actions. So I wanted that question to kind of be at, at the heart of the book, um, you know, kind of the morality of of a crime and of upholding something that you know needs a human defense. Um, in this case, it's a paper mill that's been contaminating the river. Um, and down through the bay for many generations um, because of all the harm that's been caused by the human element. So yeah, th there's a d direct correlation between that time period and what we're continuing to see as far as environmental activism and the great strides that I think are being made today. And you make the story so accessible because that's a topic that, that can put some people yeah. off. I know it, it can be a snooze fest, right? It can can shut an interview down. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's it's tricky. It's, it's very complicated. But you do you make it so accessible. You you take on such a hefty topic, and but then there's this. There are these other stories. There's family. I'm going to call it family function because these are the, the uh, David's family is so. There's something just so beautiful and magical about it. But then 
you know, there's a fine line toward, you know, the fraying edges toward dysfunction too. And we, mm. and we see some of that play out. Um, but I love all of the attendant emotions of the family story that works parallel to the story of the degradation of the environment and the way that the indigenous population there responds and reacts and is hurt and fights and struggles. Um, and it's in this part of the country where I, I feel like there's this magical connection to the natural world. I've read a, a few books about Maine very recently, and I just, I keep coming back to this idea, and your novel is another one where the characters are so connected to the land, you know, to the ghost apple tree and to these other things, the ocean whispering to David. It's just something that is part of the story. I mean, it's intrinsic to the story. You really can't even divorce any of these elements, even if they seem a little surreal sometimes, you really can't divorce them from the rest of the story. I just found that so interesting. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's super true, um, especially in a, in a place like Maine where, you know, people have depended on, on land-based industries for so for so long. And I think they're, they're well aware of the aliveness of land and how it, it supports them and how it holds them, but also how they, they need to take from it at times to make a living. Um, so it, it pervades so much of life in the Northeast in that way. And again, it kind of gets to your reading of like how dysfunction is right underneath functioning families is really spot on. And I appreciate that close reading and it does extend to the land. You know, we have what a lot of people would argue are functional relationships with, with the land. You know, when we, we talk about natural resources councils or we talk about forestry management, but underneath that is, is really a dysfunctional relationship because we're continuing to, to take from something in a harmful way. Uh, but yeah, in, in, in almost all of the families in, in the book, um, you know, there's there's this like deep, deep love where I was hoping would come through, but there's also this moment when it can quickly become ugly, become violent, become resentful. Um, and even throughout the novel, um, you know, among the narrator's family, uh, there, are, there are often moments where a way of showing one love is, you know, through physical violence. You know, there's, there's a, a time when like Simon, the oldest brother, um, you know, assaults and physically holds back his youngest brother to keep him from going somewhere and there's all these these moments where we see physical restraint as a way of expressing love um which happens and and it's it's you know it's a damaging lineage that that a lot of families are, are living with in, in small towns that was a very surprising moment in the book because there is just this profound love that's so palpable among the this family and the brothers uh, the twins and and Simon, the characters are so rich in this book, and I just found each one to be so endlessly fascinating. For example, David's parents are are Noah Fallon, and their stories, each story is so poignant. And in Arno's case, it answers some questions about him to to know his origin story, as we then learn about him as such an attentive husband and father, such a loving uh, husband and father. And then Fallon 
is a force. I mean, she's someone who is at the center of things because in some ways her decisions are what incite a lot of what happens in this book. Um, so there's so much about family. Yes, I absolutely agree that is, um, it is the story. I, you know, in some ways it is the story. And then, of course, the intersections with Lyman and his family. Um, where did, where on earth did these characters come from? They're so interesting it, just in terms of how deeply they love and, and also how that very love, uh, to use the example of Simon going to use physical violence um, against his younger brother to keep him from then getting in more trouble. Where did these characters come from? I'm very curious about the twinship too because uh, I'm a twin and I'm always curious about, this is the main character, uh, David, who is a twin. And I just found that to be such an interesting choice. Yeah. Um, where, where did they come from? That's They, they, they came very slowly, um, actually. I spent many years, well, about seven in total, writing this book. And... Um, I would have kind of little little echoes of, of who different characters were would slowly come. And I spent a lot of time just thinking about them and kind of letting their characters coalesce before I wrote them. And that tends to kind of be how I work in general. Like I'll have these years long, con I'll be in conversation with myself about a character for, for years. You know, what if this character does this? Or what if, you know, what if Almi is a twin? What if, <laughs> what if Arno protects his family or loves his family so hard because he didn't have a family? His family was was taken from him. Um, so they very slowly emerged in that, in that regard. And one thing I wanted was, or, and I hope it comes through is, is, you know, that there's there's a complexity between what they want and what they have and an interplay between that. You know, Fallon wants deeply to be to be a partner. She wants to be in partnership with Arno. She loves her husband. She loves her children. She wants to be a mother. But at the same time, she has her own ambitions. You know, um, she wants to make real change through journalism at the small town level, which she, she believes is fundamentally possible. So she's also this mother who is at times very not present because she's absorbed in her own passions. Um, and, and I think the most interesting people I've known in my lives have been able to walk both those lines, you know, have a very full and deep love for their family that that is kind of constant. So you can go away into your own individual world and into the own work you need to do in the world and know you can come back, you know, a, a better and more fully rounded person when you return to your family in ways. Um, but yeah, Arno's like deep love and his attentiveness as a father and a husband, it kind of also goes to his his darker side in the book, or there was, you know, my, my hope is it comes through. Um, when when his family is is threatened, it it gets, you know, ugly quick, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, he's uh, he's you know he's he's a Vietnam veteran. Um, both him and Lyman um, are veterans, and they had different different paths in the war. Lyman was um, kind of celebrated for his service, where Arno deserted. Um, but back at home, Arno has been more celebrated as a person for what he's given to the community than Lyman. So they're kind of shadow figures in a way that parallel each other. And um, when they perceive threat to their family, um, it, it often kind of puts them on high alert, which I was, I was hesitant to go too deeply into PTSD in, in the novel. Um, but there, there is an element of, of that, you know, when, when the thing that 
you care most about is is threatened, your hypervigilance comes out. And that's the case for both Lyman and for Arno. Well, not to give too much away about the last maybe third of the novel, but the you're right. These characters are flawed in ways that move us from this sort of strict morality play, thank goodness, where everybody's all good or all bad. Um, I mean, we want to have good guys and bad guys, but we want a real story about real people. So I appreciated being able to see these characters um, who's, you know, Arno seems like he can do no wrong. And, mm. um, but then we see that just as in war, there's always this collateral damage. There's always a fuzzy thin line between what we can perceive as good or bad or, you know, as only one thing. So even Lyman can be perceived in really sympathetic ways. And then even Arno isn't without some, some instances of very poor judgment. And the same can be said even of a character that I'm sure readers will find to be a, a beloved one, somebody like Moses or somebody like Molly or, or Adam or anyone in the story, really. In fact, in one part, David is looking at his twin brother, Link, and notices, I wrote down the quote here, how grown up he looked and that in our games, one side was good and one side was evil. I kept thinking about this idea and how it shows the complexity of each character here and that they each possess so many dimensions. So I actually appreciate that, the complexity of these, of every single one of these, even Fallon. I mean, part of the time it's like, oh yes, Fallon, she's the champion for all working mothers. And then, you know, in other moments I'm like, oh, Fallon, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so right. I totally, and, and it was all oh, Fallon because of things I, you know, sort of recognize in myself, these flaws. So no, I mean, I think I think that that lends so much to this story about the ways all of these families intersect. Yeah, thank you. Um, I had so much fun writing writing Fallon, um, and as a character, and you know, now now that I'm away from this novel and have been for for a while now, um, I just I find myself missing her more than any of the other characters. Interestingly uh. enough, but yeah, I mean. It's so easy, right, to get trapped in in binary thinking, um, and, and that just just as we go through our daily lives, like something is this or it is that, mm -hmm. and again and again, like I'm always trying to force my characters not to, you know, adopt binary ways to to make space for a perspective that includes um, a multitude of perspectives or or some gray area, um, and again, like in in regards to how how Lyman and, and Arno kind of shift and fall from grace for lack of a better phrase at times. And, um, you know, other, other characters who, who do harmful things or hurtful things in the novel, like we, we know that, you know, hurt people hurt people, right. That, you mm -hmm. know, harm compounds down through. And, um, we're, we're seeing that in all three of, of these families, um, where they're, they're taking the hurt that's been done to them. Um, and oftentimes extending that, and the the three families are there. There are two two non-indigenous families: um, the Ames family and the Creel family. And then there's a Penobscot family. Um, that's Molly and, and Adam, who you referenced. And Moses is effectively um, Molly's godfather, uh, in ways. And um, he's also Penobscot. I kept wondering if it's 
if it's a main thing, spending any amount of time in this part of the country inspires this uh, reverence and um, and the and this knowledge of the way that human history merges with the land, not always positively right, but in ways that speak to um, the complexity of of coexisting and of and of society and of colonization and you know all, that whole story. But in this book, I, I feel like. Could it be uh, something about that connection to the land that is that is very distinctively Maine? I mean, even the animals in this book, um, Cricket, the horse, and mm-hmm. Sam and Daphne, the two dogs. The, I mean, even those moments in the novel just absolutely swept me up, and <laughs> you know, uh, and became sort of the focus for for those uh, paragraphs or those pages. It just seems like there's this. Um, extra quality of specialness about people who are in tune with the natural world, um, like Arno in this case with with uh, with Sam the dog, and and even with Cricket earlier on, and then of course we see how David has sort of inherited this connection to to Cricket. It's just something um, so um, so special in this book. Um, Again, the the ghost apple tree and the rest. I just found it to be. Um, you don't have to, and I don't think you have to be particularly open to the idea of the specialness or the surreal qualities of it. It's it's just something that you can appreciate, and I think almost envy in a way to be so close to the natural landscape, the river, and um, and the land, and. Uh, I mean, even even the more difficult aspects of this, you know, the rugged outdoors and the cold, I think, is something uh, that comes through in such a beautiful way in this book. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate how, how much you noticed the like the aliveness of, um, you know, the, the two legged characters and the four legged <laughs> characters. <laughs> there was. There was important to capture um it was important for me to try to as, as well as i could capture um like the aliveness and the sentience of, of all of the, the the entities that are alive in the book um whether it's a, a dog or a horse or our human characters or or the land um but yeah it i think there is something very there's something very deeply rooted in the natural world i mean i, I still live in maine and I, I grew up here and i returned here after grad school and you know I'd, I'd been away for a decade um kind of living other places and and what i what i found when i came back was you know i i was hit very powerfully again by by how connected i felt to the earth and how much more connected i felt to the earth here than in other places I lived. And I, I don't know if that's just because, you know, I had more time, I had been busier, you know, other places I lived or, or what it was, but there was an aliveness there that was impossible to miss. And it was kind of, you know, the, some of the inciting moments for the book actually were just, just how kind of magical elements started to kind of shine out in my imagination um, among nature. And I say magical elements. I'm, I'm talking about like you know the, the ghost apple tree, uh, you know, a tree that keeps its fruit and stays alive even through the deepest freeze of winter. Or there's other moments in the book where um, somewhat surreal or strange things happen um, often around or as embodiments of the natural world. And that those those things never felt strange to me growing up. Um, they still don't. I, I still have moments when um, 
you know, the, the very strange feel very familiar um, in, you know, what, what we might think of as more magical elements uh, don't, don't feel any uh, stranger than, than the reality or like the empirical reality that we know. So uh, I just, I think it's really interesting how there's, there's definitely an aliveness to the world and, you know, kind of the world under the world we know that I think often manifests in natural spaces. And I think fiction um, has this ability to really capture those worlds beneath worlds mm-hmm. really well. You know, there's that ability to go deeply into the interior of a thing, a person, or a place. And there's also like all this space to world build. So if you have a, a place where fantastic things happen and are very normal in how they're perceived and then normal things happen and kind of feel a little strange, um, fiction's a, a great place to kind of bring that um, contradiction to life. Yeah, and I was thinking about how if you have a, a place like this and these really sort of um, these people in their sm- in their small worlds, basically living through these big moments, and I forget who said it. Maybe it was David, who said, "You know, I'm so tired of everything ending up being a really big moment, or really everything just feels so heavy. Everything that happened." And I kept thinking of, you know, that sounds like some of the things my my students have told me, like, is this what it's like to be a grown-up, a pandemic, a weather disaster, an impeachment, an insert? You know, I'm tired of some of all the big things. When do small things happen? But there is some something very mythic that that happens in this book. And there's a lot here, too, that has to do with the lore of the, uh, the Penobscot River and Valley. For example, you mentioned the ghost apple tree, and I was thinking too of the one to do with the um, the banshee who's accompanied Fallon's family oh, for strange. all these. Yeah, yes, and the sea is a kind of whisper to to David. And I was thinking about something that David, the, the narrator, says to us by way of Wren, and this comes a little later in the in the novel that has to do with this idea that. And I I have the quote here. We can only account for about 7% of all the matter in the known universe. What this means is that you'd be a fool to believe that way you can see, feel, and comprehend is more important than what you cannot. Probability would dictate that what exists in the other 93% of matter may hold great importance. So the perplexing truth is that there are quite possibly other worlds playing out that we can't see or even begin to comprehend. And this is something that so many of the characters seem to understand, if not super explicitly mm. and pointedly, certainly, certainly very implicitly. I mean, they just sort of embody these ideas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and I think one of the reasons, uh, you know, that, that David is hungry for a quieter moment is, you know, all of these characters are carrying so much history with them. Um, they're kind of caught up in this stream of, you know, you know centuries of big moments. And those big moments are running under the surface of their lives with an awareness that they have. And they're also kind of culminating in, in, in the plot of the book. And um, I, I very much wanted the place to, you know, the, the place I'm writing about to have this kind of mythic, almost larger than life feel um, to kind of create its own mythography in a way. And um, I'm really 
touched to hear that 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 came through in the reading um because you know that, that that that's important to me i, I always love I, I love works of fiction in, in which you know they have their own their own world their own myths their own folklore their 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 own like lineages that the characters are are carrying forward um and yeah ren ren is always kind of um pointing out the obvious in ways to david and the wondrous and um yeah that that's that's a passage that that kind of gets right at some of the heart of the book and how little we know and how sometimes thinking we have everything figured out you know leads to catastrophic circumstances and collisions mm-hmm. i kept going back to the very beginning of the novel i mean david has said to us i am a doctor and yeah. we already know what has and we and we're so immersed in in his world as a 14 year old and and on that to come back to that point you know a, a person who a doctor a person who is who has to be very rational and has to look at the empirical side of things and has right. to be but is, he's also uh so sensitive to uh, the very things that Ren is explaining to him, and that we've seen him live throughout the the novel for the for the whole duration of the novel. He's su- such an open character. He's so open to the things that his mother tells him, or that he understands about his mother because of what Reggie has told him. And he's just he's just such a lovely and memorable character in that way and we get to see him sort of full circle or at, as an adult and realize that um, even though his his path has got taken him to a place that's sort of moved him away from um, what his father used to do or maybe even some of his mother's idealism um, he still possesses so much from his two parents yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, David or David or, or Almi, um, as, as he goes by, as a nickname. Um, it was important for me to to have him continue to be open um, and and to be absorbent of everything that he was being told and everything that was happening around him. And there's a passage pretty early on in the book where he, you know, he talks about. You know, how he's what he's hoping he's retrospectively looking back he's you know he's about events that happened when he was a teenager in the novel and he um you know he says that i'm, I'm hoping to stand in the, the flow of history or the weight of history and move through these lives that made up my life um similar to you know the river that kind of flowed through all their lives and connected them so he, he's taking on this kind of terrifying task i think of allowing yourself to go deeply into all of the people that we're we're in our your immediate family and your community and and try to see them for you know all their beautiful moments and their flawed moments um and and it and it it sounds like that that narrative choice worked really well for you and i'm really happy to hear that it really did i mean i kept thinking about how he's living with parents who live that idea um Mm. of community and right. so they they can be in their small world on their property, which seems a little isolated. And, you know, and they're, you know, the secrets that families sort of have to have, you know, the idiosyncrasies of, of families. But they 
the ways that they are, the ways that somebody like the character of Grace, for instance, can still be almost, in spite of everything, uh, like a second mother ultimately, or yeah. that she she could still, even though the, the, there's tremendous backstory and conflict with Lyman, uh, Grace's husband, that even Grace can come through. Like the community is so strong um, even when we realize that maybe they're suspicious of each other, they d they're not fully trusting of each other, they do have to coexist. And this is true of how they um, interact with somebody like Molly and Moses and Adam. I mean, th that we are all on this earth at the same time. And David Almi is somebody who seems to really understand that if we don't treat each other as a community, um, then then what are we doing yeah absolutely yeah that that's that that the, the goal is and, and, that, and that, I, that i think is something that 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 has a deep tradition um in my life and in in the lives of many people well people everywhere obviously but but in, in maine as well you know how how tied to our communities we are and how aware we are of the fact that we have to live with one another despite drastic differences in values. Um, and yeah, that, that, um, that it's interesting that you mentioned too, kind of this, the sanctuary that, that Arno and, and Fallon create, um, they create a, you know, how they build a house on a peninsula in the river where mm -hmm. they're going to raise their kids. And it's kind of, you know, it gets into the, the darker side of a sanctuary or an obsession is, you know, you, you make this what you think is a perfect place um, to try to contain your life, but at the same time, you're you're closing out the rest of the world, and you're losing perspective. And for two people who live in a place um, that are so dependent on community, I mean, that, that can have really dangerous ripples. Um, so it, I found when I was writing the book that I wanted these families to go deeply into their own kind of sanctuary spaces and then be forced to move back out into the community spaces. Um, and, and that's that's something that um, creates, I hope at least creates a certain amount of tension where they're, you know, they're moving inward and then they're realizing they need to move back outward and what they want to have in their, their closer, you know, sanctuary style lives is in conflict with what the community needs in the moment kind of a rambly answer but no <laughs> no that's exactly understand what i'm kind of like hinting towards <laughs> yeah no i i totally understand and that's the paradox right right i'm sure you know so well i want to ask you about lyman he's uh he's someone from fallon's past and he's very much in this story he carries this kind of dark cloud around him mm. for a good part of the story because um these very dramatic things that a occur between him and Molly, but we learn that his whole life pretty much he's carried around the weight of his family's judgment um, and of, of the town too, everyone. He's already a very volatile guy, but then things happen that ramp up all the tension whenever he's, whenever he's in a scene. These characters carry a lot of heavy baggage you know so we were talking before about how they're so complex they're they're in no way one dimensional they have all this they're all trying to do the right thing everybody mm. here's trying to do the right thing um and Lyman has some heavy baggage that doesn't always allow for that so that that's that complexity and the 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 paradox of of what you were just talking about and of these characters I think is what lends such a richness to this novel 
Thank you. Yeah, Lyman's kind of this, in ways, this tragic embodiment of, of how hard it can be to escape one's past or the past that's been applied to one in a small town. Um, and, you know, for, for all the, the good Lyman does in his community, and he, he does he does a lot, he kind of, you know, re rejects his family's money and, you know, history of, of, of uh, mill ownership to, to become a fisherman, and he organizes a lobster cooperative and collaborates in a lot of community building ways. Um, and he, he still can't escape from some of the darker elements of his past. And then he does further harm that compounds those darker elements. And it's an interesting question for Lyman. I've, I've always been curious and you think I would know since he's my character, but at times I'm, I'm still not sure if, mm -hmm. if Lyman, you know, causes the harm, he's like the dark cloud that brings the storm or if the, the storm is outside Lyman kind of creating the dark cloud. And I, I think a lot of people in the community in the book struggle with that too. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately he, he does some, some harmful things, but he has a lot of, tenderness as a character too um and strange obsessions with things like ravens and raising birds and uh, <laughs> there's, there's these, these moments where you know his love of of people and places and things is pretty apparent but um yeah he was Lyman and Fallon were, were probably the most difficult characters to write in writing this novel or the most difficult to figure out mm -hmm. um and I think they were the most I mentioned how fun Fallon was to write but there was something fascinating about writing Lyman um in that his his psychology and the places he goes are so very dark at times oh um, I can I can so imagine that and I also like I don't know if this was intentional the nod to uh the character of Lyman in the red convertible by Louise Erdrich it it wasn't intentional <laughs> oh, I um but I still I, love I it. <laughs> love that. You know, I God, I feel like I should have been aware of that. <laughs> I love that story. I love Louise Erdrich's work. Um, and of all the, the all of the stories in Love Medicine, that's one that resonated most deeply with me when I first read it. Um, well, there are yeah, other other Lymans. I, I think it's a you know an unconscious nod. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> well, there are other Lymans in literature, but I I just, oh, I, yeah, I like this I like this idea anyway. So. I like it too. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start going with that. <laughs> well, Gregory Brown, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Gregory Brown is the author of The Lowering Days. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.